Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. This week, the right-wing Tory whack jobs are in a festive mood, promising Rishi Sunak an advent calendar full of shit. So not that festive then. Uh, we'll also be reflecting on all the drama around Sunak's Rwanda bill and the rebellion that never was. Plus, we'll find out why the Grenfell Inquiry's final report has been delayed yet again with the help of our guest, the journalist and author, Peter Rapps. Hi, yeah, good. How's your week been? It's it's been it's been busy. Christmas party season. I was not prepared for it. This is the thing about being freelance: is yeah. that some years you get no invitations to anything, and you yeah, yearn yeah. for an office. And this year, I got loads of invitations. So I've been doing the rounds. I'm on a circuit, a Christmas party circuit. So you're you're celebrating the birth of Jesus <laughs> the way only British people can. <laughs> By being hungover or drunk. I'm, I am a wine-soaked sausage. I would be a delicacy in Andalusia. I, I, I taste very good for any cannibals listening. I'm also very dehydrated, like a prosciutto. I'm going to stop with this meat, meat analogy. But yeah, that's been my week. Although I did carve out some time at the weekend to like put the tree up, do like nice zen things. Oh, actually, this is exciting. I tasted Nigerian Fanta. Oh, really? Yes. And was it delicious? Oh, it was like, I'm changed. I am, there was life before the Fanta and now there's life after the Fanta. Why is Nigerian Fanta so much tastier than normal Fanta? Listen, I don't know what the secret recipe is, but it is... Is it, I imagine it's sugar. <laughs> only because that's like, whenever people say like, oh, uh, Mexican Coke is much tastier. Yeah. It's like, it's because it's got way more sugar in it. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Did you ever eat sugar cane when you were a kid? Did I ever eat sugar cane? Yeah, that was like a sort of South Asian thing. I don't remember eating sugar cane. I, 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 I'd say I ate quite a lot of extremely unhealthy things through my childhood, but I, I'm not sure that many of them were sweet. It was mainly the savoury stuff. I, I mean, there was a carrier bag full of puppetums just hanging <laughs> off my grandmother's kitchen door handle. Oh. So, I mean, I, and I just used to absolutely eat them like Pringles. I feel like that. So I used to eat sugar cane uh, until I was banned. Basically, my mum, I think she just caught me once, like pupils dilated, like just <laughs> gorging on a, on a cane in the kitchen. And she was like, oh, OK, we're not having that anymore. But I think that set in motion parts of my sort of addictive personality now. So perhaps the poppadoms is what made you a balanced man. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. Yeah, this, maybe. Readers, have you been shaped by your childhood snacks? Let us know. Readers are not readers, they're listeners. Readers. <laughs> I'm hungover. Leave me alone. <laughs> well, I'm being told in my ear that we need to wrap here. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that's because they want to hear my bars. <laughs> The phrase, it's been a tough week for Rishi Sunak, 
has been trotted out so often that it's completely meaningless at this point. But even by his low, low standards, this week has been somewhat trying with his very political survival at stake. First, Sunak spent six hours giving evidence at the COVID inquiry, and then he had to spend the next day trying to persuade various factions within his own party not to torpedo his flagship Rwanda bill. Let's start with his evidence to the COVID inquiry. Now, he started with what has become the absolutely default bog standard they don't really look like they mean it. Apology. Uh, he then moved on to defending his flagship Eat Out to Help Out scheme, a scheme that he famously introduced as Chancellor at the end of the first COVID lockdown in 2020, which invited people to visit pubs and restaurants to enjoy discounted meals. Government scientists say they weren't consulted about the scheme and that it was highly likely to have increased COVID infections and deaths. Sunak told the inquiry it was designed to save jobs and took place after the supposed safe reopening of premises. Asked why he didn't consult scientific advisors, he said the onus was on them to raise concerns in meetings, which they didn't. Surprisingly for our tech bro PM, it seems that Sunak, just like Boris Johnson, had lost access to all his WhatsApp messages from the time. He also repeatedly said he couldn't remember key meetings, emails and conversations. I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years. And as that has happened, the messages have not come across. As you said, I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp in the first instance, primarily communication with my private office and obviously anything that was of significance through those conversations or exchanges will have been recorded officially by my civil servants as one would expect. Evidence has been given to the inquiry to the effect that Mr Johnson announced the institution of this inquiry in May 2021 and around that time officials discussed the need for ministers and others to retain WhatsApps. It was a matter of um, debate, in fact, in WhatsApp communications between officials themselves. Um, around that time, April and May 2021, did nobody say to you, uh, Chancellor, it's important that you do retain your WhatsApps or we need to put into place measures for them to be backed up in case they, are, they become relevant to an inquiry? No, I, I don't recall either of those conversations that you referred to between officials, but you might have been referring to officials in number 10 rather yes. than the Treasury. And no, yes, and I don't recall anyone in my office uh, making that uh, recommendation or uh, observation to me at the time. So, the, I mean, obviously the thing that strikes you about his evidence is the sheer volume of things yes. that Rishi Sunak said that he can't remember. Yeah. I, I would also quickly like to say, as an aside, not a prolific user of WhatsApp, Please, yeah. please. The guy's Asian. Are you telling me he's not part of an enormous Asian family WhatsApp where aunties send slightly racist memes without necessarily realising that they're racist? How is he getting those gifts that look like they've been designed on Windows 95? There's no way. I refuse to believe that any person of South Asian descent is not part of a WhatsApp group with at least 150 members. I mean, because he kept saying, oh, I... I kept upgrading my phone and it didn't come across. Like he knew number who this. Like that's his yeah. defence. And also just on a serious note, I just don't believe that there was no capability for people in his position to retrieve those messages. I just don't believe it. I don't know. Can't MI5 do it? It does seem very extraordinary. And officially, you know, what we would say is we take the Prime Minister's word. Uh, but obviously, unofficially, I think he's a lying, short-trousered <laughs> fuck. Like, I, I, I've never been more confident of anything in my entire life that he's talking out of his fucking ass. 
PSUK listeners uh, who haven't already done so, please go and check out the bonus episode we did last week uh, with Susie Crozier-Flintham. For all of the political theatre... It's really important to remember that in amongst Rishi Sunak being able to not recall a single thing that happened seemingly between the years 2020 uh, and 2022, uh, the people that really matter in all of this are the people that lost loved ones to the virus. And Susie in that episode talked very movingly about her father and also about the experience of being part of the uh, group of COVID-19 bereaved families who was actually present um, for the evidence of Boris Johnson. And uh, uh, it's a very, very worthwhile thing if you haven't listened to it already um they deserve answers Mm. and what they don't deserve is somebody saying i can't remember anything and a conversation about phone upgrades yeah it's another staggering dereliction of duty from our current prime minister yeah absolutely and i i think actually just because we'll be talking about an inquiry later on the show we're talking about the grenfell inquiry and actually i just think that's like a really good note like whenever we see these proceedings play out the circus as they sometimes can feel just remember to be a victim of whatever catastrophe it was, how you would feel when you observe that. Like when you see them mealy-mouthed excuse-making, it's, it's, it's horrible and unjustifiable. Uh, after the COVID inquiry, Sunak's next challenge was to get his massively controversial Rwanda bill through the Commons without being voted down. For context, the last time the government lost a vote on the second reading of a bill was 1986, so the stakes were pretty high. Uh, the Safety of Rwanda Asylum and Immigration Bill, which would designate Rwanda as a safe country for asylum seekers, is a key part of the government's response to Supreme Court judges who ruled that the original plan was unlawful. Now, his problem going into this vote was that various factions of the right wing of the Conservative Party don't think that the bill is strong enough and want it beefed up, whilst centrist Tories, who are sort of known as One Nation Conservatives, argue that the plan sends out the wrong message about the UK's commitment to international law and its treatment of refugees. So the big question, was all the noise of the last few days just posturing or was there actual substance to the rebellion? The answer came just after seven o'clock on Tuesday night when the result of the vote was announced in the House of Commons. The eyes to the right, 313. The nose to the left, 269. So after that result was read out, Rishi Sunak was seen hugging his chief whip, Simon Hart. After all the fuss, the bill went through. Quite comfortably, we should add, uh, with a majority of 44. Not one Conservative MP voted against the bill. The 29 who chose to abstain included former Home Secretary Suella Braverman and Robert Jenrick, who resigned as Immigration Minister last week. That's quite a significant figure because that's the exact number needed to overturn the government's majority. So this bill now has to come back for a third reading. Rishi Sunak's extremely damaged by all of this. Mm. It's kind of nerve-wracking to imagine that this horrific plan could go through based on the One Nation Tories doing the right thing. I mean, the One Nation Tories... Well, they won't support it on a third reading um, if it is circumventing international law. I'm pretty sure it already maybe is. Do you know what I mean? So what, what is this moving goalpost consistently? And the thing about the Conservatives, and I'm sorry to speak in, uh, you know, broad brushstrokes, but the, their sort of lust for power and clinging on to power will always trump everything. <laughs> well, uh, sometime before his Home Secretary, James Cleverly is alleged uh, though he says he doesn't recall making this comment, which is the different from denying it, I should be clear <laughs> to say. Uh, he doesn't recall describing the plan as batshit, but it's quite illustrative, I think, mm. that a Conservative MP would hold that opinion and then, for the sake of their own career advancement, work to get the plan across. I, I find the whole thing sort of nauseating. You know, while everyone's focusing on this 
political drama. Actually, I think it's worth us not losing sight of the the human cost of what we're talking about here. You know, we learned that on on Tuesday, an asylum seeker on board the Bibi Stockholm barge, which, you know, houses migrants off Dorset, has, has died. It's believed the man died by suicide. The cruelty is the point. The hellish system is the point. And so it's it's important that we don't really lose lose sight of that. Like like the Rwanda plan, the accommodation barges, like the Bibi Stockholm, you know, it's it's all part of that system to deter people from coming to the country in the first place. And it was it's quite chilling actually that no one in the conversations, in the discussions that were being had about this bill mentioned this poor man which also just tells you that it's everyone's sort of focused on the the kind of the winning and losing rather than the human beings involved. Yeah, this is the most important point here. A person has died on a barge that exists to deter asylum seekers from coming to this country in the first place. It, that should be a cause for some introspection amongst our political leaders in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. If you're going to make everything a conversation about political calculation and poll leads, you are eradicating the human beings that are at the centre of this conversation. And uh, until somebody is willing to actually stand up and say that policy should be crafted with people in mind rather than abstracted appeals to different bits of the electorate based on polling data. We are never going to break out of a cycle of violence that we're perpetrating on the most, some of the most vulnerable people uh, in our societies. The Refugee Council's chief executive, Enver Solomon, called for an independent review to be carried out following the appalling loss of life in order to avoid further tragedies of this kind. He said, and, and this I think is really important to bear in mind, a new approach that always sees the face behind the case and treats every individual person with the dignity and humanity they deserve is urgently needed. Mr Solomon added that the asylum system has more hostility than compassion built into it. Mm. You have to ask yourself a question, what kind of country do we want to be? How do we want our institutions to be crafted? How do we want our policy to be crafted? And if you want the institutions of this country to be more based on hostility than compassion, then I, I don't know how to speak to you. Yeah. Pod Save the UK is brought to you by Even the Royals on Wondery. When you take a closer look at what it means to be royalty, you'll see that it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. On Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, they pull back the curtain on royal families, past and present, from all over the world. And you can listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. From one of the most infamous royals in history, Marie Antoinette, but everything you know about her is wrong. Or Catherine de' Medici. History branded her as a cold and power-obsessed manipulator, saying she was responsible for one of the most devastating massacres in French history. But she was an orphan who spent her life as a powerless hostage, and her determination to rise to power led her to some dark places and some desperate measures. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. 
Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm-hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Don Lux. Don Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked, and use code HELIXPARTNER20. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to crooked.com slash store to shop. As we record this episode, Mark Dreyford has just announced that he's going to stand down as Welsh First Minister after five years in the job. UK Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said Mark Drakeford was a true titan of Welsh and Labour politics. Here is Drakeford speaking at a hastily arranged press conference in the Welsh Parliament, the Senate. I said that if I were to be elected, I would aim to serve for five years. And exactly five years have passed to the day since I was confirmed as First Minister in 2018. Now nominations for my successor as Welsh Labour leader will open shortly and I'm confident that the process can be concluded by the end of the spring term and that will enable the name of the winner of that contest to be put to the Senev before the Easter recess. Yn y cyfamser, rwy'n barhau fel eich prif wynidog. In the meantime, I will remain as First Minister in the full sense of that job. Here to talk us through what it all means is Will Hayward, journalist for Wales Online. Hi, Will. Hi, how's it going? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Will. Um, Will, has this, has this come out of the blue? Is this a surprise? Uh, in some ways, it's one of the most unsurprising announcements ever because he actually announced before the last Senate election, which is in 2021, that he would not be seeing out this uh, Welsh parliamentary term. So we knew he was going to leave at some point, but uh, no one really expected it to uh, to come on the 13th of December. I was at the Senate when it, the rumours started to circulate, and I can tell you it blindsided nearly every person there. So uh, you couldn't describe it as um, uh, a surprise overall, but the, um, the exact timing uh, has wrong-footed, I think, quite a few people. So what happens now? And do do you have a sense out of the runners and riders who the sort of presumptive favourite is at this stage, given the circumstance that this is slightly caught everyone by surprise? 
the only person anyone knows in Welsh politics is uh, is now leaving. That is pretty devastating. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are two main front runners. It's uh, Vaughan Gething, who is the former health minister, who's quite recognisable because he was the health minister through COVID. And then there's Jeremy Miles, who is the current education um, minister. So those two are the um, two that are seen as really it's it's theirs to lose um it will mean that we'll have our first uh, either black or openly gay um first minister if one of those two was to to win because uh, Vaughan Gething is black and Jeremy Miles is gay those two are considered the front runners because they have the most popularity with the the members of the senate the unions and also with uh, with the membership so as you said you know Mark Drayford is the the man that people know outside of Welsh politics. What's his legacy going to be? You can't really talk about Mark Drakeford without talking about COVID. Um, for overnight almost, he went from an obscure former social policy professor who could walk down any street in Wales and no one would have a clue who he was <laughs> to, the, to the man who could decide whether you could visit your nan in a care home. And that status that he had was, was really kind of unheard of for um, a Welsh political leader. And he really did ride that wave. And he was really well positioned because whereas you had Boris Johnson, probably lacks on detail, asking if people could, you know, blow a head right up their nose to get rid of COVID. And then you had Mark Drakeford, who is just a complete nerd, who read every single paper that Sage wanted to put out in forensic detail. You know, while um, uh, Boris Johnson was, you know, partying in Downing Street, Mark Drakeford did a, 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 an interview about what his favourite cheese was. He is a very contrasting person. But I think what that has actually hidden is actually COVID was handled in Wales quite badly. Mark Drakeford's administration was slower to, um, to start testing people going from hospitals to care homes. And that resulted in, in huge, huge fatalities. But Wales is a very different prospect for handling a pandemic because it is older than England, not least because lots of people from England decide to retire here. Um, but it's also poorer and it's got a lot of historical illnesses from, for instance, our coal mining heritage. So it was a, it was a tough job. Um, he is perceived to have handled it better than England, but I think that is a low benchmark. What do you think his sort of signature achievement is if COVID is something that complicates his mm. legacy? I was critical of the COVID response, but no one in Wales was remotely equipped or runs for office in Wales expecting to have to make those kind of decisions. And one thing I will say that he did more than any other politician, I think, in the UK is that he really explained in pretty forensic detail why he was going to do stuff. You might disagree, but you know I have shown my workings. I think it was an incredibly valuable thing for people who at the time were really, really worried. And um, I think that will be probably the thing that he did best. I mean, he made Welsh politics matter for better or worse. And actually, the, there was the biggest turnout we've seen in the last set of elections. I mean, that isn't necessarily saying much, but making Welsh politics a thing and making a more um, unique sense of Welsh political identity, I think, will be the overriding legacy of Mark Drakeford. Thanks so much for joining us. That was Will Halewood, a journalist for Wales Online. On June 14th, 2017, a 24-storey block of council flats in West London called Grenfell Tower went up in flames. Here's an ITV News report from that fateful night. And we should say, as a content warning, uh, this is news footage uh, of the fire and it does contain sounds from the fire and people trapped inside. Beneath a still moon, a blaze of such ferocity, it is almost filmic. A vision as near to hell as could be imagined as the flames soar through 24 floors, engulfing all in their path. The warnings this building was a fire trap apparently went unheard. 
but it was impossible to miss the screams of those begging to be saved from it. The fire climbed up the outer cladding, which turned out to be as flammable as solid petrol. Fire doors failed to self-close. No alarm rang to warn sleeping residents. As smoke seeped into their homes, all were told to stay put. Many did and they died. A total of 72 people lost their lives. Six and a half years later, the long wait for justice goes on. The findings of the Grenfell Inquiry, which ended in November last year, have just been delayed yet again and aren't now due to be published until next summer. On Thursday, a silent walk is being held in London's Notting Hill to remember those who died and to remind the world that no one has yet been held accountable for the tragedy. It raises issues beyond Grenfell too, such as the many people who own flats that are effectively worthless and dangerous because they have a similar type of cladding on the building. Meanwhile, in Bristol, residents have been forced to leave the city's oldest tower block due to safety fears unrelated to cladding. Uh, Many of the 400 council tenants are now having to stay in the local Holiday Inn. Our guest today is Peter Apps, a journalist and author who reported from the inquiry over its four-year duration and who's written a book called Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. Welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Let's start with obviously the most recent news that's happened, uh, the delay to the inquiry. Um, How much of a blow is that to the families who've spent six and a half years campaigning for some justice to be done? Oh, it's a big blow. I mean, um, it was already a long wait. We, we'd expected the report to come out in January um, and that was already, um, well, we're six and a half years on from the fire. So so pushing that back a further six months um, just, just adds to the length of time which people have to wait for anything approaching sort of justice and closure because the police investigation won't move forward until the inquiry report comes out and until the police have had time to digest that and filter its findings through their kind of investigations as well so it just stretches it out even further and and I think that's that's it's 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 always hard to take and they've they've had so many delays that that each one I think is an additional blow it's as they say isn't it you know justice delayed is justice denied and am I right in thinking that it's because of the private contractors taking their time to respond to the inquiry's findings well, yeah, that's right. I think there's a there's a rule in inquiry reports in the UK that if you're going to criticise anyone, um, you have to write to them with the criticism and give them the chance to respond. Um, I think the Grenfell Inquiry report is likely to criticise a lot of people. Mm. Um, and as I understand it, some of them are drawing that process out as far as they can. There's so much to talk about, about the book and about Grenfell. And before we get into that, I just want to ask you briefly how you feel about the sort of processes of public inquiries. Having spent four years covering this inquiry, do you see the point in these things? Yeah. I think certainly the Grenfell inquiry in some way shows the value of them. Um, because if you take organisations like Arconic, who made the cladding, um, and Kingspan and Celotex, who made um, some of the insulation, um, it's very difficult to get any information at all out of groups like that. You know, as a journalist, as a, as a citizen, as a bereaved or surviving family member of the fire, how do you get a corporation that's not even based in the UK to, to open their books up, share their emails, um, answer difficult questions about what they did? They just hide. And an inquiry does actually provide this sort of statutory power to force them to disclose things. 
to to send witnesses. You know, some of the iconic witnesses were able to avoid it because they're not based in the UK. But a lot of a lot of people weren't. They had to come at quite senior levels and answer these questions. And they've had to put these emails out, which are now in the public domain. I couldn't have written my book. All those internal emails with the the sort of um, shocking story they tell about the attitudes these companies had towards safety would just be buried on a server somewhere without this process. And you can't discount that. Like that is valuable. And the, the, the organizations that are at the heart of these inquiries fear that. Yeah. And I think that's a sign that they do do some good. I think you've got to have balanced against that. The fact that it just does take so long. It yeah. takes a painfully long time. And there's two problems with that. One, obviously a situation like Grenfell delays justice, but also the lessons that you would want to learn from it come along so late yeah. that chances are we've either already changed or we've missed the, the kind of political window where change might have happened. And so you end up, the Grenfell Tower Inquiry Report will come out, it'll recommend all of these changes to building regulations, to building safety and so on. But is there going to be political wind behind that by that point or is it just going to get buried? So these inquiries throw up so many issues and we talk so much about systemic failings. The charity inquest is actually calling for a new national oversight mechanism to ensure all of the recommendations are followed. Can you just clarify what this is and what you make of it? Yeah, well, I I mean, I'm a big fan of the idea of a national oversight mechanism. And I think um, the Grenfell and Tower, Tower Inquiry and the whole Grenfell story actually is a good example of why that's needed because part of the the investigations into Grenfell are why we didn't follow a previous inquest. Yeah. You know, there was an inquest in 2013, six people died, three of them children in a fire in South London, which held, you know, and I talk about this right at the start of my book, startling parallels to what happened four years later at Grenfell Tower. And we investigated that in detail. Um, a coroner sent a letter to government setting out some changes that needed to be made to prevent that fire that sort of fire being repeated and they just weren't implemented because there was there was no force compelling the government to do it and there was also no force holding them to account for their failure to do it so they could just kind of gently park it on the back burner yeah. and no one would ask any difficult questions a national oversight mechanism would change that. it would be a bit like the kind of national audit office or yeah. the, the you know the the OBR where yeah, the, the yeah. chancellor has to answer for the the economic consequences of his decisions, the the departments for, to whom big inquest recommendations are delivered or big serious case reviews or public inquiries would have to answer to this body and say, well actually we haven't you know we haven't quite followed it we haven't listened to the views we haven't responded to the letters etc and it would just bring some accountability into the process. That's all. And I think that would be really powerful. I think it was worth us taking a second to explain the title, Show Me the Bodies, because it's such an extraordinary and indicative phrase. Yeah. Yeah. So quite soon after Grenfell happened, I was sort of, I was interviewing people who'd, um, who are interested in fire safety, some of whom had kind of actively lobbied government for, for tougher fire safety rules. And they kept saying to me, well, the reason we couldn't get any traction is because government would just say there aren't enough people dying in a fire to justify restrictions on industry. That, that is how the government looked at it. They thought, and unless there are high volumes of people dying right now, we're not going to change regulations to impose more cost on industry. It's 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 an accountancy way of of viewing human life, basically. Um, and that the the phrase that that was allegedly used by officials to express that was "show me the bodies." Why would we impose what they would call red tape 
on business unless people are dying. And, you know, obviously the mistake there is that if you wait until a catastrophe to change the rules, you're going to get a catastrophe. And so I think that phrase to me summed up some of the callousness, what, what the some of the Grenfell survivors have described as sort of institutional indifference to human life. It's a very cold thing to say. And it also just tells us something about how, where the government's priorities are. They will let us die before they impose restrictions on company profits, basically. And, you know, it summed up an attitude which I wanted to convey in the book. There's a sentence in the book, uh, in, in the kind of introduction, where you say that it points to the deepest fault lines in our society, there is a sense that this is total systemic failure because it's the manufacturers of the cladding and insulation that essentially as part of cost-cutting were using a substance that is solid, essentially solid petrol, like essentially, that was being put in the buildings. The regulatory and oversight bodies were privatised and so became dependent on profit. So like the ratings agencies during the financial crisis, they were commercially incentivised to approve things that they might not otherwise have done. And then you have successive governments, um, you know, really sort of culminating in the post-2010 Cameron promise to get rid of regulation, emphasising deregulation and suggesting that regulation was actually an impediment towards financial. It's a portrait of total Mm. systemic Mm -hmm. failure. Mm -hmm. All of the measures and countermeasures that were supposed to protect citizens failed. And not only that, actually, because I think what your book does really well is it even talks about the time before what Nish is describing. You know, you're talking about when Grenfell Tower was built, it was part of a, you know, a a large house building moment, but they did it on the cheap and they cut corners and that's why they needed cladding in the first place. So it's like decades and decades and decades of this sort of buy cheap, buy twice culture, even when it's labour in power, keep it going, you know. I I mean... uh... I, I agree with everything you've said, really. I, I think, you know, you keep changing governments and changing politicians, but you're getting the same outcomes. The same philosophies are actually at work. And that's that's scary. I mean, there's a, there's a quote uh, from a guy who lost his uncle in the tower, a guy called Kareem Massili, and he's, he, he, the thing he, he tends to repeat is the system's not broken, it's built this way. And it does feel like that. It feels like it was designed to fail. It was designed to allow companies to, to, to make profit at the expense of human safety. Um, it doesn't feel like it was a mistake. Yeah. And something that I found really kind of stark is the, just that sense of like whose lives matter. And the fact of yeah. the matter is, is that there were a number of social housing tenants in that building. Not exclusively. There were some who owned their property and some who were private renters. But just generally, the sort of disdain for the poor, a lot of them were probably immigrants and, and, and people of colour. I grew up in social housing myself. You know, I'm brown and I, I, I recognise that disdain. I mm. recognise the council that minimises any complaint when you talk, talk about like the conditions of your home and the dignity that you want to have and the way they treat you. When we have this problem with poverty and when we have these problems with kind of racism, you know, to what extent are we ever going to be able to resolve something like this? Like, is, is it, it, the conversation isn't just about building regulations in no. that regard. Grenfell came from a lot of things. It came yeah. from a lot of places and, and um, a lot of things contributed to what happened. But this stigmatisation of, of the residents of the estate and Grenfell Tower and social housing in general um, contributed to the lack of investment and the lack of care being taken in, in, in treating those places like people's homes instead of um, just, uh, you know, oh, why would we want to invest money in, in that. One of the things, one of the funny things about um, Grandfather 
there's 500 odd buildings with similar sorts of cladding on. Um, not all of those are social housing. Quite a mm -hmm. lot of them are private housing. Some of them are very high-end private housing. But the place where the disaster happened is the place where it's a majority minority ethnic community. It's a majority poor community. Like you say, not mm -hmm. everybody, but that is, um, it was it was primarily social housing. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence You're because right. it, it's it, it, different types of um, things get layered over each other. So yeah, you've got the, the the cladding, but you've also got fire doors that are broken. You've also got a lift that that they've decided wouldn't be a firefighting one because they're, they're scared of antisocial behaviour. You've also got just long history of poor maintenance and cu cost cutting. And once you put all of those things together, you suddenly have a really serious, the conditions together for a really serious disaster. I think it's also really important to note that the people in Grenfell Tower were, a lot of them were, low-income families or people from minority ethnic backgrounds, they're also in an extremely wealthy affluent mm. part of London. Yeah. And a concern about the aesthetics of tower blocks played a part here. Can you just explain, because this bit I, I found jaw-dropping, can you just explain the premise of the crown? So going back a little bit, before the, the the refurbishment, there's a there's a master plan drawn up which discusses the the, the wholesale demolition of not just Grenfell Tower but the estate surrounding it. It was written for the council, so the landlord of the property um, described Grenfell Tower as a blight on the surrounding neighbourhood, and it said particularly when viewed from the conservation area. The conservation area being um, the sort of mansion style blocks that richer residents in RBKC live. So that was that was. Over it was said. It's the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, yeah. we should say. Yeah. Um, and uh, then they got into the, the the design and the recladding of the block. And there's good reasons to to, to reclad a tower block. Concrete tower blocks over time do need a bit of help insulating yeah. them. It, it makes can make them more comfortable to live in. But they also wanted aesthetics. They wanted to make this look like a modern building. They wanted to make it look nice from the outside. And so the, these sort of wings are kind of like half an aeroplane wing were kind of designed in at the top of the tower. Um, and they're not there serving any purpose. They're just there to add flair and add, you know, architectural um, aesthetic additions to, to, to the designs. But they're made out of the same aluminium composite material, which as you, you correctly said earlier, is chemically basically the same as petrol, at least its core is. Um, so what's happened at a lot of cladding fires around the world is that the fire's gone up in a straight line, in a directly vertical column, um, and then it's reached the roof of the building, and it's run out of fuel, and it's just burned out. So you've got one straight line of fire damage, and that's it. At Grenfell, obviously, the fire spread all the way around the building, and that happened because when it reached the roof, instead of running out of fuel, it hit this... Um, crown and so it spread the fire laterally around the building one expert described it as being like a fuse and so that took that that fire around and then that sends molten um, plastic down to the bottom of the building which starts new fires and spreads back up again and you know what's particularly tragic about that is that um, a lot of the people who are unable to escape down the stairs had gone up to the top of the building so that those those flats on the top floor were the most crowded and so the crown took the fire directly into the flats where the loads and loads of people were sheltering and a, a large proportion of the 72 people died at the top of that building. That came from trivial aesthetic reasons that had nothing to do with the improving the building for the people who lived in it and everything to do with improving the, the, the appearance of it for people who would be glancing out their window at it. They didn't know that what they were doing was undermining fire safety by doing that, but they also weren't asking any questions about whether it would or it wouldn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're talking about the priorities and talking about the way people were stigmatised, the way the tower itself was stigmatised. I, 
harder to get a stalker example mm. than that. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about Bristol. So Barton House, the oldest block of flats in Bristol, the residents have been evacuated and they are currently staying in hotels. That's not related to fire, as I understand it, but there is concerns with that building, concerns about uh, the safety of the building. So do you know, what's the issue here? Bristol is one of, um, Barton House in Bristol, sorry, is one of about 500 buildings around the UK that were built using this method called large panel systems construction. And that basically means taking big chunks of concrete and stacking them up like, you know, almost a child's play blocks to build a tower. Um, In a sort of post-war periods, 50s and 60s, it was a very popular way of building high-rise buildings because you could do it very fast. Um, It's quite cheap, make the blocks off-site and then stack them all up like that. They're supposed to be bolted together, but there was a, 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 a tower block collapse not for where I, from where I'm from in London, actually, Ronan Point in Canning Town in the 60s, where someone's gas oven exploded. And because once you knock one of those slabs out, you've now got a sort of house of cards type situation and the whole side of the building came down. That collapse happened in 1968. 
Um, so we've had 55 years of knowing that these buildings are unsafe, potentially. Um, and we've done some things. Most of them have had their gas supply taken out. Um, but they should really have had long-term care and attention. It should have been having structural, I think, structural surveys every year, you know, make sure that this place is safe for someone to live. Um, but most of those 500 buildings have largely been neglected over that time. And there's been sort of water ingress. Um, the, the joints between those big lumps of concrete have been getting weaker and weaker. Um, and so Bristol is actually one of several around the country that have now been evacuated because when they've sent um, structural surveyors in to look at the... Um, the safety of that building, they've suddenly realised that it's unsafe and it could collapse. And it's 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 not the first, it won't be the last, but it, it comes from very similar um, routes to the Grenfell Tower fire. It, it's about industry prioritising profit, pushing um, new building methods that are cheap but aren't necessarily safe. And then it's about us neglecting the buildings that have been built for years afterwards. If we're evacuating that building before a tragedy, that's good, but you've then got to take care of that the population that, that have been evacuated from that building and make sure that they're they're rehoused properly. And the other sort of scandal, and I sort of know about this because it's sort of a close friend of mine is kind of caught up in it, is that there are people unable to move out of their flats uh, or sell them because people won't put mortgages on them because they've got cladding that's either the same as or similar to the cladding that was on the Grenfell Tower. It is referenced uh, in the book and th there's been lots of campaigners trying to work around it because nobody's accepting responsibility for dealing with the cladding. Where are we at with this? Um, Grenfell Tower was part of a huge building safety failure, right? It was, it, we, we used that one particular type of cladding on Grenfell, but we used like at least half a dozen other types of cladding material that are also dangerous. You know, things like high pressure laminate, which is sort of cardboard for want of a better word. Um, and we also stuck balconies to the outside of people's tower blocks, which are made of wood or made of, um, you know, other things that are going to burn it quite ferociously in a fire. We never really monitored the way people were fitting the fire barriers. So loads of those aren't there when they should be. Yeah. Just a whole range of things are wrong. Yeah. Um, after Grenfell, the sort of insurance mortgage market have woken up to that. And so they've been asking people to look into what is on the outside of buildings and are these cladding systems actually built in the way that they should have been. And more often than not, they're finding that they're not. Yeah. They're unsafe. And unfortunately, legislative system, at least not until recently, didn't really provide any way of holding anyone to account for that. Yeah. In fact, often the, the cost of fixing it is going to fall on you as the leaseholder. And so we've been through this really long process over the last six years of campaigning, of... Um, debates in parliament of all kinds of newspaper campaigns trying to um, get somebody, whether it's the government or whether it's industry, somebody who's responsible for this kind of industry-wide failure to, to put their hand in their pocket and start paying for it. We're seeing a little bit of that now. Yeah. There has been some movement towards getting the original developers to pay. Some of that is working, but it's going to be a really slow process. I mean, Barrett, one of the largest builders in the UK, reckon it's going to take about 10 years for them to fix all of their flats. Wow. And that's 10 years when people won't be able to move. Yeah, It's 10 years that people are not going to be able to buy a bigger house and have kids, mm. move to have a job. You know, that's people's lives put on hold. People, And also, you can't forget living in buildings that may well be dangerous. Um, so it's a really serious situation. You can't really understate the impact that's had on the lives of the people who live in these buildings. You know, the mental health implications of of potentially being financially ruined, not being able to move, 
having these kind of huge costs bearing down on you um, has has genuinely ruined people's lives. Thank you so much, Thank Peter. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. That was Peter Apps, author of Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. We'll put a link to the book in the programme information. And we'll also put a link to Inquest Petition for a National Oversight Mechanism. It's time to name our PSUK hero and villain of the week. On YouTube, at Vulcan Nerd had this to say about last week's hero and villain. An angry Coco and a happy Nish are a reversal of the natural order of the universe, an abomination made real. I demand that by the next podcast, we have our usually angry Nish and bubbly Coco. Well, you have spoken at Vulcan Nerd and we have listened. So Nish, who's your villain of the week? Uh, I'm going to go for Graham Stewart, uh, who's the UK's climate change minister. So on Tuesday, the delegates at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai were desperately scrambling to put together uh, a meaningful deal as they faced a draft text that crucially omitted the key goal of phasing out fossil fuels. So where was Graeme Stewart, our climate change minister, at a key moment when the UK's leadership was needed alongside strong-minded allies like the US, the EU and the island nations? He was nowhere to be seen as he had jumped back on a plane to the UK to vote for Rishi Sunak's stupid fucking Rwanda bill. It it, it was deemed more important for him to return to try and help save the Prime Minister's blushes in getting through a profoundly racist political policy than it was to stay in the UAE and try and help uh, save the planet. So he did eventually go back to the talks. But this means that our climate change minister in the middle of a climate change conference did a 6,824-mile round trip just so that he could vote in an absolutely pointless and idiotic bill. Uh, it's obtuse beyond belief. Uh, the COP28 did uh, eventually agree a deal um, that has called on nations to transition away from fossil fuels and to avert the worst effects of climate change. But there are huge loopholes and there has been huge amounts of criticism. But if Rishi Sunak's government's aim was to show that it is taking climate change seriously, the climate minister would not have hopped out at quite a key phase of the negotiations to come back to settle a piece of political point scoring for his boss. Then the optics got even worse because he obviously went straight back. So he's, I mean, the carbon footprint of this guy's non-contribution to a climate change conference is absolutely uh, astonishing. At the start of this process, the Conservative Party was facing huge criticism, rightly, for sending at best a mixed message on net zero. It has continued to send a mixed message uh, on net zero. I guess we have to applaud the for being at least consistent, even though what they're consistent as is being absolutely of no fucking use to anyone. Coco, take us home on a note of positivity. So in sharp contrast to uh, Graham Stewart, I'd like to give a shout out to Jason Warriner. He's a nurse and he volunteers for the homelessness charity Crisis. Um, So every Christmas, Crisis provides accommodation and support for people across the country. This year, they're taking over three hotels in London to put up over 570 people who would otherwise be sleeping rough. Christmas is a particularly difficult time for homelessness. Um, You know, anyone sofa surfing, you know, people might be like, look, I've got visitors coming over. You can't really do that. Many of you may have seen the shocking video being shared of a security guard soaking the belongings of a man sleeping rough in London. 
So it's a really critical time for homelessness and it requires like all hands to the pumps and it needs lots of volunteers and Jason is one of them. He volunteers as a healthcare manager overseeing all the volunteer GPs, nurses, physios and podiatrists supporting their guests. Um, it's the 20th year he's done this that he's given up his Christmas to do it and here he is telling us why it's so important. Health is often forgotten. People in the sort of thing, oh, somebody's homeless, let's get them food, let's get them blankets, you know, let's try and get them somewhere else. But health is a vitally important piece of that. We know that the death rate of people die in the 40s, health conditions that are not managed. It can be really difficult to access healthcare services, A&E departments, trying to register with a GP. It's about giving people the opportunity to just come and talk to us. You know, somebody's seen a podiatrist, and having half an hour with a podiatrist and getting the feet sorted out and a new pair of shoes and socks, that can change their life. But when they've seen that, the podiatrist may say, oh, what about seeing the physiotherapist? You mentioned you've got some shoulder problems. I give the Christmas time up every year because, you know, it's about a lot of services are closed down then. So it's hard for homeless people or anybody to, to access health services and support the need. You know, I think the biggest misconception is, and we've seen it over the last few weeks, that people choose to be homeless. We've had a previous Home Secretary saying information like that. The incident in London at the weekend. Anybody who is homeless is a person, they're a human being. There's a political element to volunteering as well, which people often forget about. That actually you're making a stand, you're being political making a difference by doing something and advocating. So look, I've picked Jason as a representative of the thousands of people across the country who volunteer with all sorts of different charities. They give up their time. They make such an effort to support people experiencing homelessness. I honestly wish I could name all of you. But for now, I just want to say thank you. And also a massive shout out to Jason Warriner. These volunteers are the best of us. And even though the political system it tries to pit us against each other, human compassion can always win and he he exemplifies that and all the all the christmas volunteers do so big up to you guys you are our heroes of the week that's real christmas spirit yeah yes it is oh, really? yes it is you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk we also love hearing your voices so do send us a voice note on whatsapp our number is 07514 644572 internationally that's plus four four seven five one four Six four four five seven two. We'll also be putting out because this is actually our last episode yeah. officially before Christmas. However, don't worry, we will be uh, recording a very special review of the year episode for you to enjoy in the week between Christmas and New Year. We would absolutely love to include your contribution, so please get in touch to nominate your political moment of the year, whether that's good or bad. Bad. Let's face it. <laughs> bad. Bad. Bad, bad, bad or, or yeah, fine. Yeah. 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 Bad or fine. <laughs> Or funny. Or funny, yeah. Maybe uh, it was Keir Starmer getting glitter-bombed at the Labour conference, or maybe it was the return of the unflushable turd David Cameron, uh, or maybe it was something else entirely. Coco, anything that's springing to mind for you at the moment? You know what, I was uh, I was a big fan of Just Up Oil's summer of protest. Yes, yeah, Just Up Oil's summer of protest. you know what, this has been quite a good year for, for protest. Yeah. I feel like it's a kind of politically awakened year. I also wanted to chuck in something, you know, for the women. Yeah. So I, like, Googled, like, best moments You just Googled women. women. <laughs> Googled like best moments for women. And apparently, <laughs> weird thing to weird thing to Google, I know. But Dame Sue Carr was sworn in as Lady Chief Justice, becoming the first woman to head the judiciary of England and Wales this year. Boom. Also the Barbie movie. The Barbie movie was on the list. <laughs> well, it was on my list. <laughs> 
I, I think it's desperately sad. And I know that you're inherently quite an optimistic person, but I think it's desperately sad that you had to Google good things that have happened this year. <laughs> I, I think that's a terrible. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's evidence that it's been a good year at all. No, I know. Well, of course, it's not been a bad year. I mean, yesterday I found myself googling hope. But <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it's been more like to the definition being like a feeling of elation in regards to the future. Like, oh, interesting. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Hope. I see. Yeah, I think I had that. I'm looking forward to lunch. <laughs> so don't forget to follow Pod Save the UK on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Pod Save the UK. You can also find us on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, please consider dropping us a review. Five stars only. Thank you. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Degahi. The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. And remember to hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 